I'm very sure you have an important life, but whatever you are doing, stop and pay attention. It's the afternoon, a podcast with Brent and Robbie. Welcome to the Afternooner Sports Podcast. I'm Robbie. I'm well. Brent, it's good to be here. Yeah, we should probably explain why we had to take a a week off. And we were all in various levels of sickness. And, uh, you know, we've got kids. We're all around grubby children. And it just it just felt the wrong time. So we took, we took the week off. Robbie, you were the sickest of all of us. You're feeling better. You're back to it. Yeah, I'm here. I'm fully recovered. Still got some antibiotics coursing through my veins. Feels great. Thank you, amoxicillin. Thank you, amoxicillin. Were you really on amoxicillin? Isn't that the antibiotic they give you at the doctor's office? I feel like that's the same antibiotic I get every time. I'm sure you're right. I just didn't know you were so sick that you needed to be on amoxicillin. I had strep throat. Yeah, you had strep throat. Oh. I, I told you that right before we started. No, I remember that. I just... I guess I didn't realize strep throat was an antibiotic level illness. Yeah, I don't know if I've had strep throat ever before, or if I have, it's been more than a decade. But have either of you guys had strep throat recently? Never had it. Never had it. it it's like someone stabbing your throat every time you try to swallow, whether I've, that's food or just like the saliva builds up because you're afraid to swallow because it's so painful. Yeah. I've had it before, I think, in early high school or late middle school. I don't, I don't remember. It's not fun. I, if you don't take antibiotics, you can get scarlet fever from strep throat. Really? Yeah. I didn't Which know Which can be fatal. I, I don't know. It sounds like it should be fatal. Like, I hope they're not wasting a non-fatal disease on a fatal name like scarlet fever. That's a, that's a very good disease name. It's a great disease name. If you were... Let I me mean, tell you a bad we, one. Rosacea. Would you be more scared if you didn't have any context for these diseases? Would you be more scared of scarlet fever or crimson fever? Uh, I are, fe- aren't they the same thing? They well, sound it, the well, same. It, but, it, 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 the color is the same, but like, does the word sure crimson? Evoke... I think, ha- but maybe part of that is that we know what scarlet fever is. Crimson fever represents an unknown, and we can't yeah. Separate horses ourselves out of, from it's that. horses out of is, the barn. Is crimson yeah. fever a real thing, or do you just make it up? I'll see if it's a real. Th- I just made it up. It if could be a real, real thing. thing. That's a failure of the medical profession that they would have a scarlet fever and a crimson fever, and they're not the same sickness. Crimson fever actually brings me to the exact same page that because I just googled scarlet fever. They they send you to the exact same page for scarlet fever. So maybe some people call scarlet fever crimson fever. Okay, medical profession, you're off the hook this time. Scarlet fever, crimson fever, fuchsia fever. What color is fuchsia? Is it pinkish, purplish? I'm I, not really sure. I don't know. Billy, do you know what color fuchsia is? I thought it was like a purple. Well, that's kind of close to scarlet. Is fuchsia what? What's okra? Ochre. Ochre. Isn't that a color? Ochre. Okra is a plant. It's a spice. It's a green plant, and it's tasty. I like it. We have it at our house. But yeah. what color is it? Is that mean the is ochre? Is it the same color as okra? Are they no, different they're, things? No, they're, they're spelled completely differently. How do you... So oh, what yeah. color is it? Ochre is O-C-H-R-E. Fu- what color is I it? I don't know. Hold on. Fuchsia is a vivid purplish red color. Could go for a fuchsia fever then. How do you spell ochre? O-C-H-R-E. O-C-H-R. That's how the color is spelled. Ochre is a natural clay earth pigment, which is a mixture of ferric oxide and varying amounts of clay and sand. That could I, be reddish. Is Yes, it could be reddish. Earthy. It could be. It, could it be looks a light tan. This says a pale brownish yellow color, pale, which is, just doesn't really tell you anything. Mustardy. It. Uh, it looks browner than mustard. Can I ask you? Do you bring up ochre because of Joseph and the amazing technical? That's exactly why I bring it up. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. I look handsome. I look smart. I am a walking work of art. In my dazzling coat of many colors, how I love my coat of many colors. It was red and yellow and green and brown and ochre and black. Isn't it peach? I don't know. I don't know either. It but there's, a lo- there's a lot of colors. That's where I was introduced but to ochre. Thank you for catching that. That is exactly why I brought it up. Billy, thank you for setting us straight on the color fuchsia and 
ochre and okra. I have I actually have heard it both ways. Um, Brent, <laughs> you're training for a marathon. It's coming up on is it December second? That's the date. It's right? coming up after Gooners. If you've not already done so, you can go to heroes.stjude.org backslash no forward slash. Thank you. The afternooner. And make a donation. Yes. Make a donation. We are over $1,600 now, and it would be really nice to get that over 2000 for the race. So we've got about three weeks to get to $2,000. So if you haven't donated yet, think about what you're going to do with that money and realize it's, it's just going to go away. It's just going to go away. If you've been on the fence about giving, maybe you might not have known this, but St. Jude, their giving page for the marathon works a lot like Kickstarter. So if Brent actually doesn't finish the marathon, none of the donations go through and you get your money back. Wait, to be clear, that's not true. It's not true, but I kind of wish, I actually thought about it the other day and I thought, man, that wouldn't that be fun if it were? Because then we'd have those who have had buyer's remorse. Like, man, I, I donated a hundred bucks. I've already, they've already talked about my topic on the air. I've slapped Brent in the face. I've already got what I wanted out of that gift. Now, if for some reason Brent doesn't finish the race, I can get my hundred bucks back. So you have these after Gooners who made donations. They have incentive now to go and heckle you and jeer you along the race course. Maybe even Tanya Harding you uh, in mile 20 or so. Yes, but think about the sick children that are also there in Memphis cheering you on, screaming at you. You better finish this race because if you don't, we're not going to get our money. Don't make us hurt you if you don't finish the race. So some people are screaming at me to hurt me. For one reason, other people are screaming to hurt me at another reason. Either way, you're getting hurt. Speaking of hurting at mile 20, though, I, I've actually tweeted this a couple times because it was so impressive. The New York City Marathon was a couple weeks ago, and there's this video of this some random guy. He wasn't an elite runner, just a guy running the New York City Marathon. He gets to mile 20. Most people are somewhere between mile 16 and 22. They talk about hitting the wall where your legs feel heavy and you, they don't feel like they want to move, and you just want to stop. Well, so at mile 20, this guy, there's a band playing. This guy stops, and probably for two minutes, he dances at the intersection of this street. He's doing some break-ins. He's getting down on the ground. Yeah, he's not just... I mean, the dancing is quite intense. He's really moving those knees. It's uh, So my, my question to you, um, do you have any dance moves for mile 20, or at some point if along the course, if you see a band that you like, would that do it for you? If there's a band that's playing, either a song that you really enjoy or gets you pumped up, or I, a style of music, would that make you dance at a at a very difficult time of the race? I, I, I don't have dance moves, period. But uh, I, I I certainly couldn't do what he was doing at mile, mile 20. Can I tell you what happened? So I am on the third week of, of a 20-mile long run. And uh, so I'm at about mile 18 or 19. I'm very tired. Mm -hmm. And I'm the last few miles I run in my neighborhood because it's got all these winding streets. And I'm coming across this house. And I can see a car in the driveway. And the reverse lights are on the car. And I can tell by the speed in which this car is backing up that it does not see me, and it is not going to slow down. So I thought to myself, I need either need to pick this thing way up and get in front of him, or slow down, or, or continue what I'm doing, get hit, and claim a lot of money in the following lawsuit. So I actually did number three, and I'm not joking. What you were hit by a car? So I I I knew I I I knew I was not going to get hurt. So I. Let my pace be so that he, I hit, I took both of my hands and hit his hook, hit his trunk. Nice. With my hands. This is a car. This is a car. He's backing out of his driveway. I slammed my hands on his trunk and, and shouted, watch where you're going. You're going to run me over. And, uh, and then kept on running. And, uh, he, he then pulled out, drove up next to me with the, Passenger the, window down. Well, no, with the driver window down. Oh, yeah, because you're on the correct right. side of the road. And and he said, I'm so sorry I didn't see you or anything like that. I said, it's all right. Just watch. You just got to watch for people. And then he's, again, he apologizes. like, no, I forgive you. Just, just, I even used that word forgive. And, and, he, dro and he drove on. So it was actually very, like, it was very. Good. He, 
but my thought process. This How old was, is this guy? I don't know, 60s. Okay. This was my actual thought process at the time. W- there's a lot of kids in our neighborhood, so I can do this in a controlled way that's going to freak this guy out. So that now every time he pulls out of his driveway, at least in the short he's term, he's a little more careful. He's a little more careful. It was I wasn't. It was never really. I I it was total control that this was my plan of what I was going to do. Now, unless he like suddenly at the last second gunned it, and then he would have hit my hip and uh, and ran and, you but, over. But uh, ha, ha, you guys are. I'm glad that you were in control, even though his foot was on yeah, the gas. Yeah. <laughs> have either one of you guys done anything like that before? You mean like taking a bullet to try yeah. to make the future better? <laughs> Yeah, that's, I, that's exactly. That's, no, that's very like that's admirable, and I'm glad that that's why you did that. Plus, I was very angry because my body was hurting, and I needed to take it out on someone. So it that fe- helped it probably as well. Fe- you, but you did a double-handed slap double handed double trunk, s- hard slant on I that have, trunk. I have hit. I have hit. Yeah, the I've smacked before. cars. I've, you smacked the car because mm-hmm. you're trying to, and I'm sure you scared the heebie-jeebies out of that guy. Yes, because he's going to think. The the purpose of hitting the trunk is not to show anger as much as it is to. There's a split second of like, I just hit someone because he's going to look back and see me there and think, I just hit that guy. I cut you off, Robbie. Go ahead. No, I I, uh, I think I've had that moment where you slap the back of the trunk. I've I've never would have had the the gall to do it with two hands because you're really you're turning your hips to hit it with two hands. So, you know, if you're running sideways and you hit it with just your maybe it's on the cars on your right hit with your right hand. If he goes fast, he bumps you, your momentum's carrying you forward, you're probably not getting run over. But when you turn those hips, if he kind of sped up in that moment, you've turned your hips, you you might you might be getting run over. My spite at mile 19 was strong. <laughs> the only thing I've ever done similar to that is whenever I see somebody on the highway driving fast on their phone, I usually just swerve the car right <laughs> into them. And then uh, I tell the officer later with the report that, they were on their phone, like they weren't paying attention. They drove into me. <laughs> so can I, this isn't really a running story, but talking about slapping the back of cars reminds me of this painful memory. When I was about 13 or 14 years old, it was a Sunday afternoon and my family's in downriver Detroit. It's some like, I think we're at a Racks restaurant. Did you ever oh go to Racks? Yeah, Rax? that's kind of like a beef, low end uh, Ponderosa. No, Racks is, isn't Racks like a an Arby's? Isn't a roast beef place? Uh I honestly don't remember, but it was definitely a racks. I think uh, my lovely wife, Annie, would be very confused here because you said it's like a low-end Ponderosa, but she would attest, as would I, that Ponderosa yes. is as low-end as it I'm, gets, yes. Robbie. Uh, Ponderosa is right up there with Shoney's in terms of barely edible. Shoney's. Uh, let's stay away from the Pondy, okay? How, it's, it's, not, it's not essential to the story. So we're in this parking lot. My family just finished eating. It's a Sunday. We're all in our church clothes still, but we were out of town on this Sunday. So we've got to make maybe a half hour, 45 minute drive back home. At this time, my family had a 1987 uh, Pontiac 6000 LE station wagon, the kind with wood on the fake wood on the sides. And I was the oldest. I was the only boy. My job was to sit in that seat in the back of the station wagon that faced the opposite direction. Not really a seat. Not much of a seat. But so the routine was we would stand. I would go just wait in the back. They would open the glove compartment, push the button and then pop the, the trunk and I would get in and. And we'd go on down the road. Well, I'm standing back there and all of a sudden the car just goes forward. It just starts, my dad just starts driving away. And I'm in my church clothes, my probably my penny loafers. And all of a sudden I'm just like, ha ha, real funny guys, real funny mom and dad. So I just stand there and then they get about maybe 50, 75 meters away. And I'm like, oh no, they don't read they don't realize that I'm not in the car. And so I start sprinting as fast as I can in slippery penny loafers across this parking lot in downriver Detroit, fearful that my parents are about to leave me in this parking lot as darkness is about to fall. And thankfully they get to a stoplight before they turn on to the main road, whatever. And I catch up to the car before they turn away. And I just, and I'm running, I'm sprinting full, full steam and the adrenaline's pulsing through me. And I reach out and I slap the back of that window. My hand, just talking about it, my hands start stinging. It hurts so bad, but I wanted not to be left in that parking lot more than anything in that moment. And I'm just, I'm, I'm crying because I thought I was going to be left. It was a, it was a rough. Wait, you, didn't you say you were 14? Probably, maybe 13, maybe 12. Maybe 10. 
I really thought I was getting left in that park. How young does Robbie need to be for yeah. him crying <laughs> yeah, to be yeah. okay? Really, I was 19. That's the real truth. <laughs> you, they were dropping you off to college. It was, oh, it was a terrible experience. That's So I wasn't in any danger of being run over when I slapped that vehicle, but I was in danger of getting left uh, in Downriver, Detroit. Here's a fun story. has to do with vehicles. I drove, so I used to drive a stick shift, a Ford F-150 truck. It was a hand-me-down for my grandpa, and I drove it to a cross-country meet in high school. Uh, It was a little park down the road, and I forgot to, one, put on the parking brake, two, put it in gear. But it's sort of a, it was a more level parking lot. So I pull up, I, you know, get out of the truck, close the door, I'm walking away, and I hear somebody yelling my name, and I look back, and the truck is slowly rolling backwards. (laughs) So I'm, at this point, you know, I'm too far away, but I'm running back to the truck trying to get to it. It's rolling right for this van. And I'm not going to make it in time, but I'm trying to get to the driver's seat. And it rolls back to this van, and it goes, bing, because the two trailer hitches, the van's trailer hitch and the truck's trailer hitch, hit each other, and they just kind of bounce apart. And I hop back in the truck and park it and... That is amazing. That's a lovely story. Mm-hmm. You could actually hurt yourself trying to get back into that driver's sure. side yep. door. Let's While just... it was moving backwards. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Lady Luck was with me that day. Lady Luck was with you. So let's get back to uh, the marathon. Brent, glad you're okay. Glad you uh, taught that guy a lesson. Yeah, I think I did. A good lesson, right? Yes. But I didn't swear. I wasn't swearing at That's him. That's a I good, wasn't... appropriate lesson. But here's the thing. I think there was a moment fright in his face that was unintentional. Because it was cold on Saturday, so I was wearing a balaclava. So when he drove up next to me- That's not the dessert, the Middle Eastern dessert? No, that's baklava. Okay, thank you. A balaclava, which is sort of like a ninja mask when you, you know, it covers your mouth and nose. So it's just my eyes, and it's black. And so when he rolls down the window to say he was sorry, I I just went up to the car and, like, put my hand on on my forearm on the window to be like, it's okay, just be like- no, I wasn't yelling or anything like that, but I think there might have been this this fear as this masked person was now approaching the car, and everything's okay, though. Don't fear the masked men, especially when the masked men are on mile 19. You, <laughs> you, you are in no danger. Hey, so, we, so there's a couple there's a couple other marathon stories that happened uh, in the last week or so. We talked about the, the dancing guy at mile 20 of the New York City Marathon. I don't know if you saw this, though. Uh, the Milwaukee Marathon? Uh, did you see? Did you hear about this? No, I know nothing about the Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Marathon. Marathon. Just happened about a week ago, and last year, 2016 Milwaukee Marathon, the course was too long. So people are looking at their GPS watches, their phones, whatever they're tracking, and, and their pace that they're kind of expecting. And the course was actually um, almost 27 miles. So people ran. Too almost far, almost an extra mile, right? Yeah, yeah, twenty six point two. So, which at that extra... point, like, what does it matter? No, it's a really big deal. At that, <laughs> it's point. a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal because it's extra mileage, and it's a big deal for all these people that were trying to qualify for Boston. Because if your time an extra mi- half mile, three quarters of a mile, that that's adding maybe four minutes, six minutes onto onto somebody's time, and so in in Boston didn't. They didn't honor that in 2016 because they said, hey, well, can we just take people's pace and or just what their time would have been at the 26.2 mark? And they said, no, it's tough. Snobs. So, so, Snobs. So fast forward to 2017 Milwaukee Marathon. People finish the race. They're looking at their watches. They're looking at their phones and whatever. And they notice that it's about three quarters of a mile too short. The course is too short. It says eight eight tenths of a mile too short. Yeah. So instead of twenty six point two, it's twenty five point four. What is going on in Milwaukee? This is two years in a row. Same race director that's responsible for the course, and they have people that are like that are supposed to certify the course. I mean, and so again, Boston's like none of these people could qualify for Boston if they were trying to qual- use Milwaukee to qualify for Boston. And you know, if you're trying to train use a marathon to qualify for Boston. You physi- physiologically, you can only run about at your peak performance, two to m- maybe four. If you're if you're really a, a great a good elite runner, maybe four marathons in a year. So you're really selective in like targeting maybe two races that you're trying to qualify for Boston. Um, so yeah, it's too short, too short. In, in, an, uh, in an online article, 
after it was revealed Wednesday that the course distance had been miscalculated for the second year in a row, many runners were wondering how that could happen. Quote, it would be nice if this race could actually figure out how to lay down a 26.2 mile course, said Ben Lamars, who ran in his eighth marathon at the PNC this year. Sadly, I think this marathon will not be a major and may not survive in the future. Yeah, one person said, uh, you know, runner, the running community is very forgiving. This happens once. They're going to forgive. They're not going to forget. They're going to forgive. May, probably try it again. Two years in a row, though, it's it's really going to be tough uh, to see this uh, this Milwaukee Marathon probably survive. How often did this happen 20 years ago, though? Like, before GPS, how, like, what were the chances that any of these courses were actually 26.2 miles? So I would venture to say chances are a lot of those races are off by 0.1, 0.2. But to be off 0.8, I mean, that's, that's almost that's a huge. whole mile. Like if That's like e- me using my car to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they used measuring wheels. Yeah. Some guy would walk the course slowly, not jog it, slowly so he's not bouncing with that measuring wheel and measure the course that way. Really? That's how they do it? I would think so, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know how else... Yeah, I don't. I don't have any. I've never had to do that. I I, mean, maybe you drive your car when we do our quadrathlon afternoon or quadrathlon in the spring. (laughs) We'll have to figure that out. But there's another marathon I want to talk about. An international marathon, the Venice Marathon, is in Venice, Italy. Hmm. Did did either you guys hear about this this? story? We know. You did. Yes. So about the 16 mile mark of the race, and the elite runners. I think there are six or so, maybe eight elite runners with the main pack. And they, in in big marathons, there's like a, there's a bicycle up front. There's someone telling you where to go. In this case, there's a motorcycle, two motorcycles that are one for security. If they see any unruly fans to come on and interfere with the elite runners, but also to kind of guide them. So they know which way to turn. So they don't have to think about it. Well, somehow these motorcycles take a wrong turn and they go about 200 meters, 250 meters off course. They go the wrong direction. How did they realize they were going the wrong way? Who informed I, these motorcycle drivers? I don't know who informed. It doesn't look like the motorcycle drivers realized it. All of a sudden, you see, the and there's a video of this, the elite runners, a couple of them just turn around. And then all of them turn around together. So it's not when they saw the bridge out sign. <laughs> now, Robbie, I watched the same video you watched, but I think I did something that you didn't do, and that's read the text that precedes that video. <laughs> sure. The motorcyclists didn't actually take a wrong turn. That was planned in the Venice Marathon every year. So there's a uh, planner. I'm reading this from NPR. Uh, I think they emulate us in a lot of ways, but we'll use them here. A cluster Liberal of- rag. <laughs> A cluster of motorcycles and cars that had been in front of the runners left the planned route as they were supposed to. Oh. Enrico Giacomini, Giacomini? Giacomini says? Any Enrico ideas? Giacomini. Great. A, long, <laughs> a longtime president of the Venice Marathon Club and co-founder of the race, Enrico Giacomini, tells NPR that, quote, Venice is not a city built for cars or motorcycles. And for that reason, the vehicles have always separated from the runners before the marathon's final leg. So this has been done every huh. year consistently, just for whatever reason, the small group of, again, going on, small group of runners leading the race followed them anyway, straying more than 100 meters off course, uh, which added about two minutes to their overall time. So who is this on? Is this on... The race planners who didn't put it in their race packet the morning of. I'm sure or, it's in the race packet. Or or so so then these runners at mile sixteen just forgot and yeah. kept following the and, and one really I mean, just follows the other one. Yeah, they're not they're not thinking about it. You know, one person goes, the others go and they just uh, But this has never happened before. I mean it could very well be that the officials that are supposed to be standing there saying, like, hey, you know, vehicles go this way, you guys go this way, they weren't doing their job well or they were ignored or and if correct me if i'm wrong but didn't a venetian win the race because he knows yes. not to go where everybody else is going this i'm not is... going to try to pronounce his name but he's an eritrean born uh italian who won the race he's not and he was not like an elite favorite they're expected to win the race but he's a he's a um at least a yeah high level runner he's so a his, high level runner so his name is Yab Gabriel van Hiel. Faniel. You got it. You nailed yeah, it, Billy. Yeah, that is perfect. 
uh, a local who was reportedly running in only his second marathon, Faniel, who has been referred to by both surnames, I don't know what that means, has run for the Venice Marathon Club for several years, and the Italian made his official marathon debut in Florence last year. Now he is the first Italian man to win the Venice Marathon in 22 years. He won the race in 2.12, which is a fast time. That's a fast time. His previous time was about 2.15. 2.12? Yeah, so he's... That's yeah, a... That's a lead, but he still he was trailing he was trailing the um, lead pack that went the wrong way by about two. Am I right here, Billy? By about two minutes. It doesn't say anything. And then he went on. He went on to win. I think by a minute. Well, you so. said they only went two hundred fifty meters maybe the wrong was, way. They, they estimated that they lost two minutes off the pace. So maybe he was behind by one minute and then won by a minute. Here's the thing. I think that he he could very well have won that race regardless because. The next sentence here is that that time is better than all but two times set by Americans this year, according to Sports Illustrated. So that's a very good time competitively this year. Plus, you know, in Venice, they 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 are not they are not running marathons very quickly. Generally, they've got bellies full of wine, ears full of mother-in-laws. Oh, this is okay. Sorry, it was a really heartwarming story till I got to the quote. From him. Let's hear it. Do it in, uh, as you might have thought, he said it. <laughs> so the the organizer, Giacomini, says he was doing well and this was just a lucky circumstance. Then the the runner, Faniel, you, you want me to say it how? The way a Venetian might say it. I'm not doing that. You can do that if you want to. It looks like you don't want to. I don't have the quote. Here we go. Today's race shows that the work is paying off. Faniel said after the marathon, according to the IAAF. It was not an easy race, as I had to run alone on the Ponte della Liberta. I dedicate the win to myself, as I have... (laughs) (laughs) This is fantastic. This is fantastic. Hold on. (laughs) I dedicate the win to myself, as I have always believed in my work, despite all the difficulties. That's the end of the quote. No, can, this, can, this can he makes be the him... official marathoner of the afternooner. Don't we already yeah, have is... one? Yes. Well, we've got two now. No, I want. I'm not me. I, I, I new am official. A, this is the guy I look up to. I've been following. This is Jack again. I've been following athletics for 55 years, and I've been part of the international federations. I've been manager of many organizations. Jack adds, "I've never seen anything like this." I don't know if he's talking about the race or the guy's or, quote, or the quote and attitude. <laughs> Man, I hope that guy's not married or has kids. Oh. I like to dedicate this win to me, the only one who really helped me in this. I'll, so, I'll do some research on our uh, our new marathoner. So I actually was in a trail run, a trail race once. Uh, I think a 10k, maybe 25k, about 10 years ago or so. And uh, all the top runners, there's maybe a group of six or so. They all went the wrong way. There was actually a, a little kid who was standing at this intersection, pointing them the wrong way. They all went maybe quarter mile, half mile all the wrong way. And then they ran back to the, they realized that all ran back to the spot together. All were still finished ahead of the nearest competitors. You? Well ahead of me. But uh, they actually, they actually self-policed and they say, okay, what order, this is the order we are in when we went off course. We're all going to finish in that order. That's, that, that's almost as lovely as Faniel's uh, quote. Dedicating this win to me. I, I mean, I actually feel like your story, Robbie, is, is like two ticks away from being some sort of, uh, some sort of European legend about how to treat other human beings. Once there were these warriors running down a race or running down a trail and a small child pointed them one direction and they all went the wrong way, but then they came back. And like, It just sounds like here's a little fable for how you're supposed to behave. And one day you will be the last place runner, Robbie Bolton, <laughs> trying to... No, I, and then they, then I they, kid. And then they sacrifice that child for pointing them down the wrong path. <laughs> so there's a lesson to be learned, children. So, so uh, running's in the news. Uh, it's also in our own lives. And of course, if you do donate to heroes.stjude.org slash the afternooner, you can request uh, 10 minutes of a topic or whatever you like. And we, we, we've got some donations to work through. We've got a couple of things. And, and one donor, uh, a faithful, faithful after Gooner, uh, he and his wife wanted not a particular topic, but a particular shtick that we haven't done in a really long time, and that is letters to our children. Oh. So 
So we're going to do, I mean, this is trying to honor, appreciate everybody's donation. We're going to do a letters to our children in honor of Ben and Marie Keister, faithful Afrikaners. Dear children, it's been a while since I've written you a letter. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do you hear the music playing? <laughs> it's been a while since I've written you a letter. No, it's not because I've been in prison. If anything, prison would make me a more effective letter writer. Though admittedly, most of my letters would be nearly illegible scrawls about my innocence. Of course, your mom and Todd will tell you it's best to move on from the past. And besides, everyone thinks they're innocent. Thing is, kids, maybe I did kidnap the governor's son. But did you ever ask why? Did you ever care? Anyway, it's nearly winter. And that means sports watching season is upon us. There is very much a right way and wrong way to watch sports. First, it should always be done in homes or restaurants. The traffic, the prices, the bad views, all these things can be fixed by watching sports all day from a couch while your children poke you with a stick and wonder if you're still alive. <laughs> Even if you do watch sports from home, there are right ways and wrong ways to do this. It's always uncomfortable watching sports with someone who is too into the game, shouting not because it's fun, but because they cease to understand that you can't control what happens in sports the same way you can control your children. With irrational demands about changing the past, and idle threats of abandonment. <laughs> now, the key to being a good person to watch sports with is to care, but only when it benefits you. As soon as things aren't going your way, you jettison any emotional attachment faster than your dad did in high school and college when he realized whatever relationship he was in wasn't all that fun anymore. <laughs> of course, knowing that is one thing, doing it is another. That's why I've created the following fan theory in order to make prudent sports engagement easy to accomplish. I call it the sports karaoke theory. Children, what I maintain is that someone should engage in sports the same way they engage with karaoke. Anytime someone is potentially engaging in bad sports fan behavior, all they have to do is ask themselves if they could get away with that kind of acting out at a karaoke party. Let's consider some of the rules. Rule number one, your favorite song is not more important than the mood of the room. We can all agree Stairway to Heaven is a fine song. However, it's long, you can't sing it, and if you try, then people will get bored and spend too much time wondering why they hang out with you in the first place. In sports, the same is true. How your team is doing is not as important as freeing others from worry that you might put your fist through grandma's decorative plates. Rule number two, if you don't have a serious problem with the song, then sing along with the group. Is singing Girls Just Want to Have Fun a really overbaked, unoriginal, and repetitive move? Of course it is. The fact is, however, that they need a second alto. <laughs> In sports, the same is true. Unless you have a really good reason not to, just root for whoever the room wants to win. Number three, Songs can only go well. When they go well, they go well. And when they go badly, they go well. The only time they don't go well is when you're a self-serious sack of crap who thinks you might win someone's affection based on how well you can harmonize unchained melody. Oh, my love, my darling, I've hung good for Yo ho 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 touch. That's wonderful, thank you. In sports, when things go well with your team, great. When they go miserably, who cares? You still got to relax and have some junk food. The ability to shrug your shoulders and become emotionally detached at the first sign of trouble might be called bad fathering in some contexts. <laughs> but in sports and karaoke, it's nothing short of beatific. Rule number four. It's always okay to do it alone. In a car, in your house, in the shower, everywhere is a potential karaoke party. Same with sports. No shame in watching by yourself. 
Sometimes it's even better than with other people, especially those who keep espousing theories of life during commercial breaks. And rule number five, you aren't better than the original, so stop taking yourself so seriously. You don't sound better than the musician, and you couldn't throw that pass any better. Admire the artistry, and keep shoving those Funyuns in your fat face. <laughs> Sincerely, your podcasting dad. Shoving Funyuns in your face just brings it a little too close to home for me. Fat sport. face, actually. Fat face. Do you want to say that again, Robbie? No, I'm just... Do you have to look at me so glaringly when you say fat face? Remember, it's letters to my children. It's not letters to Robbie. Oh, you're certainly acting like a child right now. <laughs> so that's a, a thank you for the uh, for the donation, but I, I actually stand by that theory. Sports karaoke theory. Sports karaoke theory. You, anytime you're not treating sports like you should treat a good karaoke party, it's it's going wrong. And look... When you do karaoke, something I, I probably rule number six for a future letter to my children, you can't make it too absurd and silly. You have to at least try, right? Like if you're going to sing a song, you can't just like go up there and be like the whole time. You have to like try to sing. So when you watch a sport, you have to at least be participating in the yeah, sport you have itself. To, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's that's unofficial rule number six. Yeah, kids. I can't actually. I can't think of anything more obnoxious than going to watch a football game that I may have no emotional stake in, but I'm interested, like, maybe it's two good teams and I want to watch the game. And then the guy's sitting on the couch, so you're like, oh, man, look at them uh, being offsides. Look at that uh, icing. Look at all that icing happening out on the football field. Absurd. Where do you watch sports at, Yeah, I, I, Are you looking at me right now? No, I'm not I, implying either of you guys. I can just imagine. Well, that's what Super Bowl par- that's why Super Bowl uh, parties are just yes, insufferable. That, yes, that's that's a better example. Now, now Billy and I have strayed away from Super Bowl parties over these last few years, but Robbie, much like your trunk or treat fiascos, you keep getting dragged into these things. Now it's November. It's mid-November. Can you say right now? I'm not going to a Super Bowl party. Make an afternoon or promise. I can't. I'm not. I can't make an afternoon. Why? Promise. What do you? What do you do? It's complicated. It's complicated. not complicated. It is complicated. No, Robbie. I've tried. I've tried you, watching no, by myself. No, no, no. Do you know what's complicated, many, Robbie? Knows no, that? I want you. No, no. Robbie, I, you quiet down and let Billy. Speak. There's too many fingers being pointed at me. This right is now. what's com- family Thanksgivings are complicated. Christmas is complicated. Easter is complicated because. A family, and you have things you have to do with your family. Super Bowl is not complicated. Trick or treating shouldn't be complicated, but for Robbie Bolton, it's complicated. Way to make it complicated. So, big holidays, national holidays, the religious holidays, whatever you want to call them, those things I understand. Those being complicated, the Super Bowl is not complicated. So, what's your excuse? I've I've said this before. The Super Bowl is. Almost always, I'm not interested. That's not because interested of how you're behaving. It's, no, it's not just that. The the championship games are really the the apex of the NFL season for me because the hype, by the time the Super Bowl rolls around after a week of hype, I don't want to watch it. I don't care. I just want it to go away. Why the is that? A... The commercials are the overwhelming. The halftime show. There's just too much. No, I wait, don't want to watch any ridiculous. of it. That's why you come and watch it. Yes, you're not living, at a party. That's why I don't know, but I don't care at that point. So it doesn't matter if just I go to a party. Just turn off the TV and there's no hype. Turn I, off the internet. Hold on. No, I think I understand what Robbie's saying. Robbie's saying because he doesn't care, he's not willing to fight whatever battles he needs to fight in order to disengage himself from these other obligations and come watch it with us. Well, what I think he's- Is that what I'm hearing? No, no, I'll spell it out. I just don't want to watch it with you guys. That's the real reason. (laughs) Yeah, look, I mean, I've had this like six or seven years running. I will not go to a Super Bowl party. Well, there was one, a few years ago we went to one. I mean, it was small- it would. I would not call that a Super Bowl. That party was a no. No wives only. It, well, it's not just. It's not about. It's let's just, for the record. That was what you said wives. to me. That was what you said to me. It's not about wives. It's about attention to football. No one is invited who cannot participate in active watching of football. So would you invite Jonathan Rink? Yes, and yes, I would. Okay. Because he would still participate, he would not try to distract. This is the this is the rule. Again, so it's the not unofficial. about it's not about content knowledge because I think Jonathan Ring would be the first one to say he doesn't really know what's going on in football. 
But I would be very excited about having Jonathan Rink there because one, he's bringing a plate of fine cheese. Probably, yes, And two, yes. he's just a pleasure to be around. And three, he's going to try and participate and engage. But this is the unofficial rule number six of the sports karaoke theory. Go is on. You can't go to the 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 sports karaoke theory. The, the, I'm sorry, you can't go to the karaoke party and while someone's singing a song, stand up and start complaining about work. Right? You can't <laughs> do that at a karaoke party. It requires you to at least be there. Anyway, speaking of Jonathan Rink. Yeah. Faithful Aftergooner, Jonathan Faithful Aftergooner, he, uh, he made a donation. At heroes.stjude.org slash the Afternooner. Which kind of slash? One of them. Forward. Or backward. I've heard it both Just ways. Just think, think of it this way. You're paying it forward. So does forward, does that start on the top right and go down to the bottom left? No. Or does that start at the top starts, left and go down to the bottom right? It starts bottom left and goes... Oh wait, that's up. what that's what he said. He just said it in I just odd said, way. I said it backwards. He, he I said it the opposite. It, way. He moved it. He moved backward. it backwards, yes. even though it yeah. was a forward slash. He, wow. he just he, yeah. This whole topic confuses me. Let's just move on and get back to Jonathan Ring. So uh, you know another donation we said we'd give ten minutes to, and uh, this faithful aftergooner Jonathan Rink uh, is a art professor, and uh, so he wants us to talk. Get that timer ready because we're gonna. This we're, is gonna be a little tough for us. We're getting and. Plus, we're probably getting close to the end of our time on this episode. We're getting close. We've got time. So, so he has asked us to talk ten minutes about Renaissance art. Well, this is going to be and difficult, its, and its impact on sports. And its impact. <laughs> I feel like it's simultaneously going to be difficult to fill these ten minutes, and also difficult to end when we get there. Yes, I I, I feel like we have less content than we have about Muppets. So. <laughs> And, we'll and see I it. think most people know when we say Kermit or Miss Piggy, people know who we're talking about. When we say, I don't even know, Monet, it's Monet Renaissance. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is really going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> no, he's not Renaissance. Uh, you only missed it by a couple hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I could just said, stop talking because for fear that Jonathan, art history professor Jonathan Rink might rescind his donation. So you, I'm just going to stop talking. Robbie, I think you absolutely need to continue talking but because this is what no, the aftergooners want. The challenge is, is like whenever we can't, everyone's not going to know which piece we're talking about or which artist we're talking which, well, about. Right. So, which is why I'm not, we're not going by piece. I have made us a top 10 list. I'm going to start at number 10 and move to number one. And you guys are. Free, feel free to throw in your opinions about my top 10 list of Renaissance painters. Sculptors, too, I guess. I have a, I have a couple as well. I think there may be some overlap. I, don't, I, I mean... I'm not going to mention another painter just uh, for fear that they're not going to be a Renaissance well, painter. Well, Robbie, how about this? You have a computer in front of you. You're able to Google search or your phone. So at the very start of this 10 minutes, I'll give us a timeline for what the Renaissance looks like. And then, Robbie, you can Google any painter you know and see if they fall within that timeline. Fair enough. I'm giving you sort of the rules for participation. All right. So before we start the 10 minutes, you're going to need to do a one-minute discussion oh, of what the Renaissance was? Uh, no, I'm just giving him the timeline. So timeline, it's really like a five-second thing. Spoiler, Bob Ross is not in the <laughs> Renaissance. <laughs> Although I did see a Bed Bath & Beyond yesterday, a Bob Ross Chia Pet. You can buy a Bob Ross Chia Pet where you water it and grow Bob Ross Do you hair. think his estate is getting any money from that? Surely. I mean, yeah, yes, his estate is getting some money. Maybe not a lot, but some. So, again, I'm pulling from a website that I think was inspired by the Afternooner, Wikipedia. The Italian <laughs> Renaissance was the earliest manifestation of the general European Renaissance, a period of great cultural change and achievement that began during the 14th century, so 1300s, and lasted until the 17th century, or 1600s, marking the transition between medieval and modern Europe. The French word renaissance means rebirth and defines the period as one of renewed interest in the culture of classical antiquity after the centuries labeled the Dark Ages. I like French-speaking Billy. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I just watched most uh -huh. of the new Beauty and the Beast. There's a lot of French in that. That's good, Billy. Uh, let's <laughs> all right, so let's get started. Now, these are not all Italians, but uh, the majority of them are. Number 10. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, I haven't started yet. My, my mistake. And also, with the Muppets, you started with number one. I also got some 
some uh, pushback on that. Also, <laughs> remember, I did. I started at number one so that we could go to the bottom up because we wanted I, the ones that we did not like. Exactly. Why aren't we doing that? Because I don't have any bottom Renaissance painters that we hate. So we're just going ten to one. That's a great point. All right, here we go. Get the timer ready. All right, and go. Number ten, Da Vinci. Overrated. Right, you, you were waiting for me to put him at number one. He's number 10. First of all, your book stinks, man. Your book stinks. Uh, as, as a sports podcast, I'm surprised we have him so low because what's his uh, Vitruvian man? Isn't that, isn't that Da Vinci? Yeah, the man in motion. You know, so you see that and you think it's a muscular, athletic looking man. You think it has something to do with the body. You think Da Vinci would be one of the more sports inclined or Renaissance painters. Let me blow your minds for a second. Billy, research. Look up the size of the Mona Lisa. Oh. Look at the size of the painting of the Mona Lisa. Do you know what the size know, is? No, I don't know the size, but I know what you're doing. Go ahead, though. What's the? What are the dimensions of the Mona Lisa, Billy? Uh, two and a half feet by almost two feet. It is a tiny painting. It is a tiny painting. And frankly, it wasn't even a famous painting until I think Napoleon came along put it on a wall, then it got stolen from Napoleon, then it sort of took on a life on its own. So, look, did he do other stuff? Sure, I guess. He's on the list, but he's number 10. Not giving him anything more. Are you guys okay with that? Great. Number nine. Number nine, Botticelli. I have nothing more to say. I mean, Botticelli is the painter that you always talk about when you're talking about women being too skinny, and they say, like, well, think about back in the Renaissance and Botticelli's nudes and things like that. That's all I know about Botticelli. So he had to go on there somewhere, and uh, Da Vinci was a hack. So Botticelli's number nine. He's not the he's not the singer, the blind the blind classical singer. Botticelli, what's his name? Andres Bot. But it's not Botticelli. I know who you're talking about, but it's what? not Botticelli. It's uh, what is that guy's name? You know who I'm talking about, yeah, right? Andreas something. He's blind. He has a he's wonderful sing, voice. He sings with Sarah Brightman. I mean. A time I, to say goodbye. That was that's his. Bocelli is that Bocelli? Maybe I, I don't, don't know. know. It sounds I, close to Botticelli. Just look up blind Italian singer. There. Well, I hear Botticelli, and I just think of the olive oil, like the food. You know, they got the noodles, Botticelli noodles. That's enough to get him in the top ten, I think. Sure. If not, bump him higher. Pa- Pasta is very important to uh, getting ready for big sporting events the night before football who? games. Absolutely, races. absolutely. Blind what? What am I? Blind who? blind Italian singer Andres Andrea Bocelli. 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 Close. Not Botticelli. I'd like to put Bocelli on the top 10, but the parameters don't let me. I feel like saying that's close would be like saying Stone and Samson are close. They are, in a way. Number eight. (laughs) Nuno Gonzalez. Nuno Gonzalez. He's a Portuguese painter. Go on. He he does this, uh, I can't pronounce it. It's a Latin phrase, or maybe it's Greek. I don't even know. It's probably Greek. Eke homo, which is uh, behold the Christ. That's what that's what Pilate says. Behold the Christ. I think it is probably Greek because homo is Greek. So eke homo, and he's got this really creepy, amazing painting of behold the Christ. That's uh, that I think is a pretty great painting. You know, if you Google behold the Christ, you get a song by artist Trip Lee on the album If They Only Knew, released in two thousand six. The song is Behold the Christ. The artist Trip Lee, a Christian hip-hop rapper. Do you know the song, Behold the Christ? I don't know Christ? the song, but I've heard the name. He's he's kind of he's behind the cray as far as Christian hip-hop rappers go. How is he behind Nuno Gonzalez, though? He must be a fan. Okay. Number seven, Raphael. He's the leader of the group. He's a little hot-headed, though. Isn't that the line from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle rap? Raphael, he's the leader of the group. I would think Leonardo was the leader of the group. May- there's tension there. Is there tension there? I think yeah. there's probably tension in Raphael because he's got an inferiority complex because he has the worst weapon. I mean, his weapon is Leonardo's weapon, just like three feet smaller. Well, no, he's got That's the, gonna cause some uh, he inferiority. has like the pronged guards. Number one, you can throw those weapons a lot easier than you can throw a longsword. Well, then you have to go get them. Not if you kill who you're... Th- well, I guess you do have to go get them if you kill who you're throwing them at, but you've succeeded in doing what you're doing. What if there's four people? I just... Are you telling me if me and you are going in a fight, you're sure. going to choose Raphael's weapons over Leonardo's? You get two swords? Two swords. So, I mean, part of that is, again, I'm no martial combatant. You certainly have range and perhaps efficiency, 
But if I'm getting in close, like all I have to do is get in close, and those swords are worthless and you're dead. I stand by choosing Leonardo, and uh, I understand that there's some tension there because I think Raphael's probably working through some uh, through some problems. Number six, Donatello. Whoa. Are we going to get all, all four Ninja Turtles here? We're definitely going nin- to get all yes, four Ninja all Turtles. all four Ninja Turtles come from the Renaissance and from Christian And the hip-hop. reason they have the names they have is because those are like four of the greatest artists of that time right. period. Yeah. Like so the- they're all coming in here. But Donatello has a really creepy, again, it's another creepy, I guess I like that, this wooden carving of a penitent Mary Magdalene that uh, is... It's just, it's not something you'd want to see in your hallway in the middle of the night. I don't know what oh. art you'd want to. You're seeing it right now. Yes. We can maybe tweet that picture I don't think out. I've ever seen that before, but that is. Give some props to Donatello. What's he can, trying to do there? Can I can I backtrack? It's I have the, the Penitent Magdalene. Oh my goodness. I have the lyrics from uh, Turtle Power, one of the Turtle Ninja Turtle songs. Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Donatello make up the team with one other fellow, Raphael. He's the leader of the group, transformed from the norm by the nuclear goop. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I don't agree with that lyric. It's what, what, what are you showing? This is Donatello. This is the we're looking at a Donatello wood. That's from wood. That's impressive that it's from wood. It's very intricate. It's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to drop him down below, Raphael. I mean, that's kind of Raphael's like, leader of the group. That's sort of what, uh, like horror movie. That's like horror movie level. Like that's a, a creature we'd it, see it, in a horror it's movie. Penitence. Now. It's penitence. She can't be smiling. The, the scariest of all things. Number five, Michelangelo. And I just had to put him in there somewhere. Apparently he was a thing. His whole pizza wisecracks get a little old. He was my favorite of the Ninja Turtles growing up. I can see that. I would say and nunchucks. Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't the Sistine Chapel thing, you know, yes. he lay, he's, laying, he's laying upside down on scaffolding, hanging up there, doing it, you know, yes. on it. very athletic. Must be He must have been somewhat athletic to have been... Uh, in those kind of positions, painting for hours and hours on end. But I believe he saw himself as a sculptor more than a painter. Well, that's why, fun fact, he was angry at either the bishop or the cardinal who had hired him to do this work because of like restrictions and stuff. So you can actually see some of these church figures that he was angry at, like their, their skin is removed from their body and is like in some of these paintings in the Sistine Chapel like he painted them in hell or like being tortured by demons nice yeah nice job, no Donatello Michael. wait oh no we're talking about Michelangelo. Michelangelo Michelangelo fantastic because he stuck it to the man who was really ticking him off number four now we're leaving Italy here we're going to Peter Bruegel the Elder who you might know as the famous peasant painter mm-hmm. uh if your Fleet Foxes if you're a fan of Fleet Foxes mm-hmm. the cover of their original album is a Peter Bruegel the Elder it's always the one of the sort of like pastoral scenes of peasants doing different things number 3 Caravaggio he was uh on my list Brent Caravaggio one of my wife's favorite painters the, there's just something about the way he uses darkness i don't i don't know anything about art but his paintings his is like the classic painting that you look at and you're just like oh my gosh that's incredible he doesn't he uses darkness to make the figures in his paintings more prominent they're they're very realistic dark in terms of color and imagery a lot of beheadings there's a lot of a lot of beheadings going well, a lot on of, a lot of a lot of biblical painting correct number two going back to the netherlands jan van eck Jan van Eck. Now, the reason I chose Jan van Eck is not for what Jan van Eck did in his life, but what happened after his life. Because in the 20th century, see, Jan van Eck had made this huge altarpiece in Germany called the Ghent Altarpiece. And one in the 20th century, one part of that altarpiece was stolen in what is perhaps the most famous and successful art thievery in the world. It was called the Just Judges panel. And the Just Judges panel was stolen. And then letters started to get to be to sent uh, to Brussels. Because I think it was in Brussels. It wasn't in Germany anymore. And it said, I'm, this was stolen from us in Versailles, during the Treaty of Versailles, and we're stealing it back. They never found it. Even when they figured out who did it. And after that guy died, and his lawyer like found all the letters, and it says, here's the clues as to where it is. And he's written these clues like, no one will ever know besides me and this other person, and try and find, and you can't. And nobody ever did. And to this day, the Just Judges panel is lost from the Ghent altarpiece. So um, 
if we if we are able to find this uh, Just Judges panel, do you think that would be our most and reveal it on an episode? Is that our most popular episode ever? Yes, at least among art historians. <laughs> Caravaggio has a similar story. Uh, the Nativity with San Lorenzo and San Francesco was stolen by the Sicilian mafia. Nice. I went, when was this? This was in, in 1969. Two thieves entered the oratory of San Lorenzo and stole the painting. Experts estimated that this painting was worth $20 million. Former Italian mafia members said that it was stolen by the mafia and it was displayed at important mafia gatherings, but then that it was damaged and then they destroyed it. Oh. So the whereabouts of it are still unknown. They don't know if it actually was destroyed or not. I want to. I want to throw out something real quick. Uh, I think if you are an individual, so not involved with organized crime, if you are an individual who steals either art or diamonds, you should never have to go to anything more than a minimum security prison. I think art thievery and diamond thievery. <laughs> Just because it's kind of a charming thing. I think to it's do. a charming thing to do. Yes. I mean, and heist movies are fantastic. He- I mean, this I is can part never get of it. Enough yes. of heist movies. So this is why no organized crime. Like we don't want any sort of weird human trafficking stuff. This is an individual who's going to steal an art piece. An individual, which is what happens with the Just Judges panel, the Ghent altarpiece. So something that really only has value because we've determined. Right, like it's, both diamonds uh, and art. Yes. Sure, they're just things that we've placed value in, even in in and of themselves. They don't necessarily have value. Yes, and then the stealing of it doesn't feed into some insidious underworld. Sure, uh, is there I, a specific reason that you uh, think that white collar thieves of art and jewel jewelry should uh, only go to a minimum security prison? Well, because when I inevitably steal art and diamonds, that's what I want to happen, and I will appeal as my self representation. In the courtroom, I will appeal to this episode, Evidence A, I already called it. Uh, <laughs> I called it, Your Honor. I'd be very excited, Brent, if you got away with stealing art of diamonds. Ooh. Or diamonds, diamonds of art. made of art. Yes. Well, it's all carbon. Harder to do. It's all <laughs> carbon. All right, so who's, uh, who's number one? And number one, finally, back to the Netherlands. With uh, maybe the one of the weirdest painters ever, Hieronymus uh, Bosch. That's he, a delightful choice, Brent. Hieronymus Bosch, his most famous work is The Garden of Earthly Delights, and it shows people happy in sort of like a, an Edenic world, and then it shows heaven on one side, and then it shows hell on the other. And the hell has been studied for hundreds of years because the imagery on the hell side of The Garden of Earthly Delights is so, and I mean this in the sort of like, dictionary definition of the term fantastic yeah that everyone wants a piece of what could this possibly mean and it's just the stuff of archetypal nightmares right this is like jungian psychology going on it's 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 incredible not something i necessarily want to look at in a dark hallway much like the penitent magdalene from donatello but there is a interactive map online where you can get really close and click it and sort of there's commentary from art historians it's really fun but even in the heaven, even in the not hell portions of this painting, things are a little off and a little creepy. And you'll like look and be like, oh, it looks like they're having a good time, except I'm not quite sure what's going on. Like it's even in the what's supposed to be the pleasant portions, it's uncomfortable and, and bizarre. We're going to tweet out the uh, address to this website where you can study Hieronymus Bosch, uh, his Garden of Earthly Delights. They don't know much about Hieronymus Bosch. He's sort of like a mystery of as to what was going on with him. But I am putting him as our number one Renaissance painter, official afternooner Renaissance painter, Hieronymus Bosch. I agree with that. We have about eight seconds left on the timer. So we hope that 10 minutes was good enough for the donation. Thank you, Jonathan Rink. And if you would like us to talk about a topic of your choice or slap Brent in the face, give at heroes.stjude backslash... Wait, shoot, I messed it up. Heroes.stjude.org slash the afternooner. And if you don't, if you forget that address, you can always call us at 517-798-6187. Can I, can I get a little more Unchained Melody from you? Because that was, that was pleasant. Oh, my love.
my darling. Listen to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. Tweet at us at the afternooner. Until next time. So long. Bye.